Well, I wouldn't necessarily call this a Father's Day sermon, but I can make this connection. When the disciples said to Jesus, show us the Father, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And all of us have misperceptions about God. We kind of come up with a God in our own mind, and then we imagine that's who God is. And we have God's Word to tell us who God is. He's revealed Himself to us in His Word, and more specifically, He's revealed Himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, it's a little strange to wrap your mind around that the Son is the Father in the sense that everything the Father is is demonstrated and manifest in the Son, but the Son is not the Father. So it's part of the mystery of our triune God that He's three persons, one God. One of those passages we're very familiar with in Christmas, around Christmas time is that in Isaiah 9 that the Messiah will be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, you know, Prince of Peace. And you're like, wait a minute, he's the Son. How, how is he the Everlasting Father? The, the Trinity is, is so much one that the, the attributes are, are shared in that sense. So, I know many of you think of God as, as angry and distant. Um, especially if you come from certain denominational backgrounds. My wife, being raised Catholic, always thought of God the Father as angry. He's, he's angry all the time, and he's distant. And um, Mary is, is the loving mother that you can come near, and she'll talk to Jesus and put in a good word for you. And Jesus will talk to the Father. And I hear that's common among Catholics. Not every Catholic. I don't want to mischaracterize the religion. But I hear that a lot. That uh, the Old Testament is that angry God that you hear about in Catholicism. And for my wife to hear about this God who is loving and forgiving and can be called Abba Father, Daddy... Um, it took a while. It took a while to, to believe that. And so maybe there's some of you today, because of um, maybe your relationship with your earthly father, uh, who maybe was distant and always angry, and you never were able to please. And some of you maybe even come from a background where it was hard to come home. Because you didn't know what was waiting for you when you got home. Uh, an angry father. We, we need to go to the scriptures and see what God is really like. And not mischaracterize him. And certainly God does get angry. I'm not saying this morning he doesn't. But we're going to look at what makes God angry. And then that will inform us what should make us angry. Anger is not necessarily sinful. Jesus got angry. God gets angry. In fact, Romans 1 clearly teaches that the wrath of God is being revealed. 
against ungodliness and especially the suppression of truth. That man neither acknowledged God as God nor gave him thanks as God, but instead replaced God with uh, idols. So I want to look at this morning this passage after Jesus has entered Jerusalem and they've shouted Hosanna and the palm branches and he's our king and we know a few days later they would turn on him and we looked last week at you know what makes people turn that way what made the crowd get angry they had their own agenda their own expectations and felt justified in their expectations and got angry with Jesus when he didn't meet their expectations so if 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 you lose me in the middle of the sermon, that's kind of the, the point. It's where I'm going. Is we get angry when we have these unmet expectations and we think we're God and we want our way and we get angry because people aren't listening to us. They're not doing what we tell them. They're not agreeing with us. And in a sense, it's, it's a form of idolatry. Only God has the right to get angry when he is not worshipped as God. We have seen Jesus display his authority over nature and over demons and over sickness and even over death. And certainly he is the king of kings. And, and you're thinking, so what is he going to do with this authority? What is he going to do? He's got everybody's attention now. The, the scene is set. He could do just about anything he wants in this moment. And I was thinking this week, you know, what would I do with that moment? And come on, you've had that fantasy where the moment is yours. Um, how would you spend that moment? You have everybody's attention. You have the power Sometimes it's that dream where you win the lottery, and now what, what are you going to do with, with, that, with that money? Or, I'm kind of a golf nut, and today's the final round of the U.S. Open, so you have these fantasies of, what would I do if I won the biggest tournament? You know, how, would, how would you spend that capital? And if we're honest with ourselves, we, we would spend it on ourselves in some way. Even if you won the lottery and you're like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give half of it to the church and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help the poor. And really, are you going to do it anonymously, though? That's, that's the question. Probably not. Right? You'd, you'd want the acknowledgement and the affirmation that you did something good. And you see these, these great athletes after they win um, especially golfers have been taught to be humble, but it's like you, you play the tournament so you can win. So you could say to everybody, look at me, I'm the best. And then in the interview, they're kind of like, you know, I, I, I just kind of got lucky and, you know, it was just my day. And you're like, oh, come on. <laughs> we know what drives you. And... Let's look at what our Lord does with this moment. This three years has been leading up to this moment. He enters the city. They're shouting Hosanna. He goes to the temple. 
He could do just about anything he wants to do, and here's what he does. Luke 19, 45, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. What's fascinating is that this is how Jesus started his public ministry. We find out in John's gospel that he started his public ministry by cleansing the temple. And now he bookends it at the end of his public ministry, cleansing the temple again. It didn't stay clean. They, they, they didn't get the message. These people were hard of heart and stubborn just like you and I. I mean, think, think about how many times God has had to discipline you for the same thing. And this is where Jesus puts the priority. He's got all authority and all power. He's got all the attention of everybody in Israel. And this is what he does with this moment. He cleans out the temple and chastises the people for turning this house of prayer into a robber's den. And then he begins to teach. He, He purifies out all the false teaching and all of the idolatry and all of the greed. And he holds court and he teaches truth. And he points all the glory to the Father where it belongs. He points all the glory to the Father. And he reminds the people from the Scriptures what the whole point of the temple was supposed to be. And so we see what makes God angry is when His name is defamed, when His people, His chosen people, His elect, aren't properly demonstrating to the world who their God is. They're not being a shining city on a hill that draw people to the Father. They're they're not teaching people their need to repent and praise God for His mercy. In fact, just the opposite. They're teaching people to be legalistic, moralistic, self-righteous, hypocritical, saying the right thing, doing the opposite in private. This is what makes God angry. If, If this characterizes you, then yes, God is angry with you. And this characterizes all of us in our heart of hearts. And the good news is that God doesn't have to be angry with you anymore because Jesus on the cross absorbed God's righteous anger. He he took it on himself. Even though he was the perfect one, even though he perfectly honored his father, perfectly obeyed his father, 
If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. You could make two errors this morning. Either you could say, God's always going to be angry with me. I'll never be good enough. You're right. You're never going to be good enough. That's what the cross is all about. In Christ, Christ is sufficient. God has poured out and emptied his cup of wrath on his son, so now he can be pleased with you through Christ. And you could say, Inasmuch as I'm, I'm trying to do the will of God, God, God is, is pleased with me. And you can, you can rest your head at night and, and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But the other mistake you could make is that, oh, why would God ever be angry with me? You know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I haven't killed anyone, right? I, I, I generally do kind things. I, I, I'm pretty generous, Right? You're building your case like the Pharisees did. Why would God be angry with someone like me? Well, look and see who Jesus got angry at. It was the people who didn't think they needed God's mercy. He could have gotten angry at lots of people. People who were just openly sinful. The prostitutes. The tax collectors. And there's plenty there to be angry about. But they knew they needed mercy. And Jesus had mercy and was gentle with those who knew they needed mercy. He, he, he didn't excuse their sin, right? He called them to repentance. It was those who didn't think they needed to repent that he got angry with. You, you want to see anger? Read in Matthew the woes he pronounces on the Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. And then, and then he says, you'll travel land and sea to make a, a convert. And all you do is make him twice the son of hell as you are. It's like, wow. Wow. Where is that Jesus in our culture? Like, pe- people don't want to acknowledge that Jesus. The Jesus who preached more about hell than he did about heaven. That, that Jesus. The occasion was the Passover. The Passover, the, the high point on the Jewish calendar. The Passover where... All the people would gather in Jerusalem and remember God's mercy to deliver them out of slavery in Egypt. And the cost of that deliverance, that a a spotless lamb would be sacrificed and that blood would be put on the doorpost and the angel of death would pass over your house to remind the people that they deserve punishment as well, but God was showing mercy on those who put their faith and trust in God to provide a substitute, pointing the people back to Abraham, right, and, and, and Isaac, and pointing them forward to the true spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. And, and they were supposed to gather and, and bring 
their sacrifice to the temple, bring their worship and celebrate God's mercy. And here's what was happening, though. They, they would get to the temple, and the temple was designed by God very specifically to, to show people that, yes, God wanted to dwell with His people, but the problem is, is that God is holy and His people are sinful. We, we kind of take that for granted. We come to church, we, we call in the name of the Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus, we understand that through Christ we can boldly approach the throne of grace, but only because of the sacrifice Christ has made on the cross. We, we, without Christ, we're doomed. We can't approach the Father. We can't call Him Father. And, and that's the way the temple was designed. God wants to dwell with His people. I will be their God, and they will be my people, but they need to be holy as I am holy. And so, the closer you got to the innermost part of the temple, the more purification was necessary. So by the time you get to the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could enter and only one day of the year to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, the, the, the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And so when they built the temple in Israel, it was designed in a very specific fashion. There was an outer court called the Court of the Gentiles to remind the world that, yes, Israel is God's chosen people, so Gentiles were not allowed past that court, but they were allowed to come near. They were allowed to come near because God intended Israel to be a light to all the nations and draw the nations to God. And then from the court of the Gentiles, the next court was the court of women. And only Jewish women were allowed in that court. And then the next court was the the court of men, and only Jewish men could enter that court. And then inside that was the court of the priests, And only priests could enter that court. And then it went to the holy place where the sacrifices were made. And then the last room, the holy of holies, the most holy place. All all designed to remind the people that God can't be approached willy-nilly. The way you feel like approaching Him. That He is God and we are not. That He establishes the rules. And instead, what was going on was in the court of the Gentiles, all this buying and selling was happening. In fact, they called it the Bazaar of Annas. Annas was the former high priest. The current high priest at this time was his son-in-law. Yes, some things never change, right? Nepotism, the power stays in the family. Historical records tell us that Annas was the one who was pulling the strings behind the scene. He was the puppet master. The high priest at the time was Caiaphas. You know that name, Caiaphas. Jesus had to stand before Caiaphas the night he was tried. But it was really Annas who was pulling all the strings. 
And Annas had set up this whole system by which the priests could profit off of the people. Use their position of authority instead of shepherding the people, using the people for their own filthy, greedy gain. People coming to the temple to give their sacrifice to God, and they would say, we need to examine the animal. Nope, this one doesn't meet the standard. What are we going to do? That was our best lamb. Well, you're in luck, brother. We've got some approved animals right over here. And, And historical records tell us that they had cordoned off part of the court of Gentiles and turned it into a corral with just thousands of animals. And... Uh, the price was marked up, right? That's how they're going to profit off of this. And for the poor, because God has mercy on the poor, the poor could sacrifice uh, two doves. But of course, the doves they brought were were not the right kind. The priest would inspect them and find some blemish on it and say, really, you're going to sacrifice these to God. And so, well, what are we going to do? Well, we've got some approved doves right back here with, again, an exorbitant markup. And people had to bring their temple tax, and the temple tax could only be paid with a certain denomination. And what if you came from another region of Israel that used a different denomination? You had to exchange your money. And so the money changers would charge a fee to exchange your money to the right denomination. And the doves and the the lambs could only be bought with that kind of money as well. So the whole system just stunk. It was corrupt. Everybody knew it was corrupt. But it just became like, well, that's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. Nobody was speaking up on behalf of God's glory. Nobody was saying, do you really think this is pleasing to God? Do you really think this is worshipful? As we get a little further along in Luke, there's going to be a a story about a widow. And she, she spends her last two mites, right? Like... Uh, one of the smallest coins. And we always teach that story, I guess, to make people give more. Wow, look, she gave everything. And that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is, what kind of God do you think would require this poor widow to give her last two mites in order to gain God's favor? That is not the God of Israel, that is not the God of the Bible. You are misrepresenting God. God would never require that of a widow. So Jesus is coming on scene and finally saying what needed to be said for a long time. And he makes 
the statement in a very powerful way, he just starts tipping over tables. Imagine the money going everywhere, the pandemonium. You know the way crowds act. Mob mentality. Imagine just coins everywhere, people trying to scoop up coins. He's knocking over tables. We know that he made a whip out of cords. He's driving out the money changers. We read in Mark's gospel that he's... uh, knocking over the seats of those who are selling doves. And uh, apparently there's one gate on one end of the court of Gentiles and another gate on the other end, and people were like cutting through as a shortcut not to worship, but just to get their, their, uh, all their buying and selling from one place to another. And somehow Jesus blocked off the, that entrance, and, and he wouldn't let anyone pass through. Like, how did he pull this off? Because he's God. That's how. And nobody stopped him, and there was a Roman cohort there, and they didn't stop him, and the high priest couldn't stop him, and the religious leaders couldn't stop him. This is the first official act of Jesus as king. And he enters the holy city and he says, this place needs to be purified. This place needs to be purified. How dare you use my father's house in this way? How dare you use my father's house in this way? He was concerned for the glory of the father. What made Jesus so angry? Think about this. You know they're going to mock him. You know they've already mocked him. They don't listen to his teaching. They try to, like, trip him up in public. They ask him misleading questions to try to get him uh, to lose an argument. We know he's going to be personally attacked. He's going to be hit across the face. He's going to be spit on. He's going to be falsely accused, and he, he, he never gets angry at these things. Because I get angry over far less, right? When I'm offended, and I'm not getting my way, and somebody acts disrespectfully towards me, which seems like a good reason to be angry. And yet I look at my Lord, and this isn't what angered him. What angered him was his father's name being defamed. His father's character being misrepresented. Which is going to drive people away from the father. There's over 300 references in the Bible to God's anger. And the number one reason is for idolatry. Secondly, He directs his anger at those who are self-righteous and don't think they need mercy. And then thirdly, those who suppress the truth. They hide the truth from people, especially the truth about God. And then fourth, those who have no compassion for the weak. No compassion for sinners who are crying out for mercy. Certainly the paganism of Rome makes God angry, but he didn't go straight 
to Rome to clean house. He cleaned house at the temple. And we see throughout the Bible's history that God will often use pagan nations, right, to chastise His people for their idolatry. He'll use idolaters to punish His own people for their idolatry. And you say, well, that hardly seems loving. No, it is loving. It is loving because His people should know better. They've experienced God's love and His mercy and His compassion and His deliverance. They should know better. Now, God doesn't let the pagan nations get away with that. After the pagan nations punish Israel, God turns around and punishes the pagan nations for punishing Israel. It's a pretty amazing example of the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. It's that God was sovereignly using these pagan nations to chastise His people and then turning around and saying, hey, it was your choice. You knew you shouldn't have done this. Don't mess with my people. Those are my children. Don't mess with them. And He would turn around then and punish the pagan nations for their idolatry and their maltreatment of Israel. And we see that even today, don't we? How on earth is Israel still in existence, surrounded by idolaters who say publicly, publicly, when all the leaders of all the nations gather, they say publicly, we want to destroy this nation. And the other nations don't do anything about it. And yet, Israel exists while still denying Jesus as their Messiah. It just follows the biblical pattern all the way through. Is God angry at the pagan nations? Yes, but God has a plan to redeem people out of every tribe tongue, and nation. And part of that plan was to make a chosen people unto himself and give them a law and then show them mercy when they couldn't perfectly follow the law, if they cried out for mercy. And that would be a pleasing aroma to God and a light to the other nations. What is it? Who is this God? This holy God who's filled with mercy and compassion. We want to know this God. And now the church as His chosen people, for those who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who've cried out to mercy and have received mercy through Jesus Christ, we are a light to the nations. We are a light to the nations. And and when we're not, when we're not, when when we're all about ourselves and our own glory, and I'm angry because I'm not getting what I want, We cease to become a light. That's the take home today. The second official act that Jesus performs as king then is after he purifies the temple, he comes in with the truth and he preaches truth. He teaches truth. This is what the temple is supposed to be for. And he mentions two Old Testament passages. 
The first one is, my house shall be a house of prayer. And the second is, mentions that you've made it a robber's den. And if people knew their Old Testament, they would recognize one of those is from Isaiah and the other statement is from Jeremiah. And it's ironic that the chief priests and the scribes and all the people who were supposed to be teaching Israel, they want to destroy him while he's teaching truth. They, they're not interested in the truth. They're mad that he's going to ruin their whole system. The, the first teaching then is that the temple is for worship and prayer for all peoples. From Isaiah 56, also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, Yahweh, look in all caps, to minister to Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. It's always been God's plan to draw people from all the nations. From every tribe, tongue, and nation. Israel was like the, the, the host nation. Welcoming other nations. To come worship our great God. And it's what the church is supposed to be today. It's what the church is supposed to be today. Do you get angry that other nations might be coming here? Because they're drawn to the freedom that can only be found in Christ. Maybe they're drawn here for other reasons. But when they get here, are you telling them about Christ? God is bringing people to this nation. You can get as political as you want, and I'm not going to. They're here. We say we trust in God's sovereignty. Are we pointing them to the reason that they should have joy. That there's freedom in Christ. True freedom. Freedom from sin. It's always been God's plan. And we read in the New Testament that because of Israel's hardness of heart for a time, God is going to raise up the church. And it's to make Israel jealous, Paul says. And that we will be a light to the nations. Well, I know a lot of evangelicals are angry about people coming into this nation. Watch your anger. Watch your anger. We can have good, healthy discussions about policy and how many people should come in and when they should come in. But don't get angry about it. Don't deceive yourself into thinking you would do any differently if your family was starving and hungry and poor. Because you're a good father and you would do whatever it would take to 
feed your children. The temple in Israel was intended to evangelize the nations. When they dedicated the temple, here's what Solomon said, also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, when he comes from a far country for your namesake, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that All the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you as do your people Israel. And then they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. It's a far cry to the scene Jesus happened upon when he entered the temple. The temple being used by greedy men to pad their pockets, to prosper at the expense of others. Perhaps we're guilty of this as a nation of people, a a nation founded on the God of the Bible and the precepts of the Bible. But perhaps we've become a nation that is about padding our pockets at the expense of others. Second teaching is that true worship starts in the heart, not at the temple. True worship starts in the heart, not at the temple. In other words, don't come to the temple to worship unless you've made things right in your heart. Otherwise, you're just going to go through the motions when you get to the temple. Jeremiah 7, stand in the gate of the Lord's house. So you're standing at the gate as the people are coming to worship at the temple and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Like, don't come in here until you've repented. Don't come in here until you've repented. And then I'll let you dwell in this place. Not, not just come to worship, but you can, you can dwell here. And do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. I went to church. I went to church. I went to church. Good for you. Come to church. But come with a right heart, a humble heart, a repentant heart, not a check-off-the-box heart. Rarely in the Bible do we see something repeated three times. What did we sing this morning? Holy, holy, holy. It's the Hebrew way of raising something to the highest degree. And here are the people saying, how do we know we're good people? We're at the temple. We're at the temple. We're at the temple. I'm sure that's what the high priests and the money changers were saying. Hey, we're here at the temple. We're doing a service to God's people. We're helping them to worship. I 
And this is what can happen with our hearts if we don't pay attention to our hearts. We go through the motions and this relationship with Christ turns into just religion and then duty. And then it becomes self-righteous. It becomes legalistic. So yes, come to church, but come with a right heart. Otherwise, the temple will be corrupted, and likewise, the church becomes corrupt, and churches have become corrupt. Churches have become corrupt, filled with people who proclaim the name of the Lord, but whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones on the inside. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. We're at the temple. That you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? There's the quote. Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. He's saying, you're not getting anything past me. I have seen your hearts. If you don't cleanse the heart, worship becomes legalistic, self-righteous, hypocritical. you'll, You'll leave these doors and you'll go home and your temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit, will be corrupt. And you need Jesus to come in and knock over some tables. So I I want you to search your heart this week, and I'll search mine, and what really makes you angry? The Bible tells us in James chapter 4 that the source of quarrels and conflicts among you, which is where anger tends to come out, right? Sometimes we get angry when we're all alone, but they usually call the people with the white coats to come get you, right? Usually we get angry when somebody else is involved. So why do we get angry? When we want something and we're not getting it. The source is uh, is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You're not getting angry because God's name is being defamed. You're getting angry because your name is being defamed. Your will is not being done. That's when we tend to get angry. I know that's when I get angry is when I've been mischaracterized, when people have said things about me that I I know are not true, and I want to defend myself. And Jesus didn't get angry when that was done to him. He got angry when his father's name was defamed. And I also get angry when things aren't going my way. And I've convinced myself in my mind that these are reasonable expectations. I work really hard. Don't I deserve fill in the blank? I don't ask for much. 
Right? Have you ever heard yourself saying that? I don't ask for much. Yes, you do. You ask for a lot. So do I. And, and really, why do we have the right to expect everyone else to conform to our will? Skip to this slide here. You can be angry without sinning. You can be angry without sinning, but you're probably fooling yourself most of the time if you think you were angry without sinning. Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It doesn't say don't sin by becoming angry. It says you can be angry, but don't sin. Deal with it immediately. Deal with it. Don't let it brew. Don't let it marinate. Don't let it grow. Proverbs 29, 11, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. James 1, 19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. I never, I never saw Skip Maine get angry. I'm sure he, he did. He's human. But this was a man who embodied being quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to serve others. That, that's how you fight anger. You're quick to serve others, listen to others, hear other people's ideas. He was a leader. He was a deacon in our church. He wasn't known as an angry man, a contentious man, a pugnacious man. We've, we've had angry people come through the church, and that's not going to stop. There's always going to be angry people. You're going to get angry. I'm going to get angry. But what do you do after you get angry? And why do you get angry? These are the important questions. Do, do you apologize? Hey, that wasn't right. I lost it. Please forgive me. That doesn't accomplish the righteousness that God requires. We've had some folks come through the church who've gotten publicly angry and they held on to their anger and they didn't apologize for it. They didn't humble themselves. They felt justified and vindicated in their anger and there's no place for it. There's just no no place for it. It destroys, doesn't it? It just destroys everything it touches. And there is a time and a place for it. We see our Lord waiting, 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 and then he busted out at just the right time and in the right measure. And he, he clears the deck to make a statement, and then, he, and then he teaches about God's mercy, that he's drawing all nations to himself, this God of love and mercy and compassion. He, he didn't stay angry. He didn't stay angry. So, let's ask these questions this week. What makes you angry? Is it really the same things that make Jesus angry? (laughs) Don't kid yourself. Me and Jesus, we are angry. Right? And you turn around and you think Jesus is standing right behind you. He's not there. 
Hey, don't, don't drag me into your sin. Secondly, maybe it's time to cleanse your own temple. Some of the precursors to anger is self-indulgence, self-absorption, thinking about yourself all the time, getting upset with others because they're not seeing things the way you're seeing it. I've seen laziness as a precursor to anger. Laziness. People get lazy and then they start getting angry at everyone around them when they really should be angry at themselves. You're undisciplined. Get, get back to work. Get back to work serving people. Be thankful. Be grateful to God. It's hard to be angry when you're praising and thanking God. They, just, they don't go together at the same time. So where do you need some discipline and some serving others in your life? Let's be known as a people who are kind and gentle and meek, not weak. Meek is strength under control. People who are ready to forgive. People who know we need mercy. This is what is going to attract people to the Father. And that's what we want, right? We want all the attention to go to God the Father. Yeah, when you're angry, the attention goes right to you. But it ain't the kind of attention you want. And so save your anger. Anger's too easy, too easy of an emotion, too easy to lose control of it. It's not one of the fruits of the Spirit. What is Jesus looking for? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Father God, thank you for being a good Father who is perfectly under control angry for the right reasons, and yet so merciful and compassionate and ready to forgive. Help us to become like Jesus, strength under control, extending mercy and compassion so that many will be drawn to you, Father God. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you and happy Father's Day.